If you have a Bible, you can open that up to the book of Luke, and uh, we're back in chapter 10 this morning. We'll finish up chapter 10 uh, this morning. I'll be, uh, I'll be out of town this week, um, back for church next Sunday, but I'm going this week to Nashville for our uh, denominational meeting. Uh, so the whole, the whole national convention is in Nashville and uh, usually, I never talk about this stuff from the pulpit because most of you don't care uh, and are unaffected by it. But uh, this week, I have gotten more calls from you about what in the world is going on in our denomination than I ever have before because it's been very public in the news. Uh, there hasn't been a meeting for two years because of COVID, and so finally getting together, and there's all sorts of stuff kind of brewing uh, in the denomination. I won't get into all of it this morning, but what I do want to say to you is this week you'll probably see stuff pop up on the news and pop up in your news feeds and pop up on social media, and I want you to be careful with that because there are a lot of mainstream outlets that are commenting on our denomination who don't have a clue about what they are talking about. Uh, they do not have a correspondent who just studies the Southern Baptist, right, or even studies Christianity in general. They just send some reporter out who, in a matter of 48 to 72 hours, learns all they can about the SBC, finds a source, and spits out an article, and a lot of times those articles are not particularly helpful. So um, they're going to be dealing this week uh, with issues regarding... Um, all sorts of things that certainly are important and our denomination seeks to get straight and there are differing opinions on how to deal with them. Uh, but what I can tell you is that I have absolute confidence coming out of this week um, that our denomination will walk out with our strong theological convictions intact and uh, I hope that we walk out with a little more accountability in terms of making sure that people in our churches are safe from sexual abuse uh, from clergy. And I also uh, pray that we uh, walk out with just a clear direction and a new leader because when we have these things, that's what we do. We elect new leaders. So um, just be in prayer about it, but I just don't want you to get shaken up about stuff you see in the mainstream media uh, this week. And I'm happy to talk to anybody. If you see stuff, you go, what is this? Give me a call or shoot me a text, all right? Or Pastor Ben or Pastor David. Uh, we'd all love to talk to you about it and, and straighten anything out for you. So if you don't care, you can keep not caring. That's fine because a lot of times these things don't affect the local church at all on the ground level. Uh, but so many of you had asked me, I said, I better say something. So um, we're going to jump into the book of Luke now. And uh, was that a great time of worship this morning? I thought that was uh, awesome. And if you love that, come back tonight for the instrumental night of worship at 6.30. Come, come back and uh, just sit and meditate upon the Lord and hear some great music. We have a, a guest pianist coming, Lori Elder and Pastor Ben are going to play some music. I hope that you'll come and be a part of it. But uh, let's have a word of prayer as we uh, go to the, the Lord's Word. Father, you tell us not just to be hearers of the Word, but also to be doers of the Word. So I pray, God, that we would be doers of the Word. I pray that we would not be like the man that looks in the mirror and then uh, sees his reflection and, and uh, walks away, but that we would look into the mirror of your word this morning and where there is change that is needed, we would make change and that we would apply the word. So, uh, Father, we turn to you and ask you to speak and ask you to give us the ears to hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, how busy are you? That's a question for us to start with this morning. How busy are you? If you're anything like me, you're probably pretty busy. Uh, in fact, you could argue to be American is to be busy. 
We are uh, some of the busiest people in the world. We, look, we work longer hours than most people in the world uh, work. A study in 2019 found that on top of those long work hours, everyday Americans have an average of 14 different things on their to-do list at any given time that they are juggling and that they are um, trying to figure out how to prioritize. And the most popular things on the list in the study, it was cleaning, uh, household repairs, laundry, shopping, going to the gym, making appointments, cooking, car maintenance, going to the bank, and paying bills. Only a couple of those things sound remotely fun. Uh, and yet, these are the things that fill our to-do lists. The average American only has about four hours of free time a day uh, just to do whatever they want with it. And it's usually that time in between dinner and when you go to bed. And we know, according to other studies, what we tend to do with that time. Because the average American spends three and a half hours a day on their smartphone. And so we sit and we scroll and we look at things on uh, social media. Uh, or we try to escape for a few minutes into some sort of Netflix show. Uh, or maybe we spend our time thinking about what's going to keep us busy tomorrow. Last year, COVID stopped us dead in our tracks. But as we enter into the 2021 um, summer, busyness is back, right? Back with a vengeance. In fact, we're probably busier than before because during COVID, new things got added to our list of things to do, like Zoom calls, right? That things that were not in our vocabulary two years ago are now in our vocabulary, and we're adding those back in on top of all the other things we were already doing that we're starting to do again. So what sort of impact does busyness have on us spiritually? And what sort of effect does that have on our relationship with Jesus? And I think we have a passage that addresses that directly this morning. So let's read it, starting in verse 38. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? And tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. We're reminded right off the bat here that Jesus is on the road, right? He's going to be on the road all the way to chapter 19 when he enters into Jerusalem and they're waving palm branches and they're shouting Hosanna. Uh, his band of believers, his disciples, they're traveling along with him and they come into a village. And we can look at the identity of some people in that village here, these two women, Martha and Mary, and it gives us an idea uh, as to what village that is. John 11 says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. We assume this is the same uh, Martha and Mary. No reason to think otherwise. So Jesus is in Bethany. Bethany's pretty close to Jerusalem. So he's starting to circle Jerusalem now. It's on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, only a couple miles away. And we should mention here that for Martha and Mary to... Uh, accept these travelers into their home, to accept Jesus, this rabbi, this teacher, into their home, that was pretty odd for the day. And that's not because women were 
not hospitable people, it's because rabbis just didn't go stay in a house where um, women lived like that, where two women would be living together, two sisters. They wouldn't just go stay with them like that. That was outside of the social norms. It shows us again, though, how Jesus is willing to break down the man-made norms. He doesn't care so much about the social barriers and man-made tradition. Uh, He was willing to eat at a tax collector's house earlier in the book of Luke, and here he's willing to stay with Martha and Mary and enjoy their hospitality and enjoy their fellowship. And so as he is teaching at their house, some drama gets stirred up by Martha, uh, one of the sisters. So we see this in verses 39 and 40. Mary, Martha's sister, is seated at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching. Okay, we'll get to that in a moment. Martha, not sitting at his feet, listening, because she is distracted with all of her preparations. Now, what does that mean? Well, she's probably making food. She's probably getting a table set. She's probably making sure that everybody's going to have a place to stay that night. I mean, you got to imagine that there's enough people there that maybe there's not enough room to even stay in their house, and they got to start calling on some neighbors to see, hey, can can you guys take some of these uh, fishermen that are hanging out with Jesus and let them sleep in in a bed tonight? So she probably had a lot of things that she was doing. It's the practical parts of hospitality that need to be taken care of. And so she's working. There's nothing wrong with this. She's serving. She's using her energy to serve the Son of God, to feed the Son of God, to make a place for the Son of God in her home. But you get some clues in the rest of verse 40 that everything is not okay in her heart. She goes to Jesus and she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Doesn't even give him a chance to answer, right? Of course you care. And you tell her to help me. So this tells us some things about Martha. Okay, number one, Martha's happy to serve, but she is impatient with those who do not. She's got no problem getting her hands dirty. She has no problem doing the things that need to be done. She's more than willing to step up. If there's not a plan in place, she'll make a plan. She'll execute the plan. She'll make arrangements. But if she looks around and she finds she's the only one bearing the burden of the work, then she gets frustrated with the people who could be assisting. Now, today, some of you need to be really honest with yourselves about who you identify with in this story. Okay? And it's probably not Jesus. And for a lot of you, it's not Mary either. It's Martha. This might not be the first time you've read this passage. And generally, when you read it, you go, I'm kind of with Martha here. You know what I mean? I kind of feel the way she feels. Mary ought to get up and help. Like, if you are a task-oriented, type-A personality, a list kind of dominates your life every week. You have a list of things that must be done, or maybe even every day. My guess is you probably commiserate with Martha here in this passage. So if like there's a team project at work and you're always the first one to step up and say, I'll lead it, okay, you probably got a lot of Martha in you. But if it drives you insane when there are people on that project that do hardly anything and then at the end kind of sidle up and go, hey boss, I'm here, and take the attaboy along with you, you probably got some Martha in you. If you show up to volunteer for something at church and you truly don't mind, you're happy to give your time, but you spend most of the time that you are serving and working thinking about all the people who are not there who could be 
and what they're probably doing. You're probably pretty like-minded with Martha. You're all in. But when other people are not all in, it drives you crazy. I mean, at least they could be halfway in, right? So, this is Martha. Happy to serve and patient with those who do not. We also learn that Martha's a bold woman. Not necessarily a bad thing. We know she's bold because she looks at Jesus, right? Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care? And also makes a demand of him. Then tell her to help me. So she's questioning the Lord. She's making demands of the Lord. It's not the only time you see this sort of boldness in her. In John 11, uh, which we're going to go to that a little bit later because you see some great stuff out of Martha in John 11, but she's still bold. It says, Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother because their brother Lazarus had died. And when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Right? Where you been? Her brother has died. Jesus shows up. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. She's bold. Task-oriented people often are more bold than people-oriented people. If you're a people-oriented person, the feelings of others tend to be a higher priority for you. Okay? I, I've been in many church meetings where we go, who's going to do this? I say, well, ask so-and-so. They're really good at that. I tend to be more task-oriented, so first thing I'm thinking is solution. Execution, right? So let's get so-and-so on that. They're good at that. People-oriented people in the meeting raise their hand and go, well, you know, Brother Smith, he used to handle that about seven years ago, the last time we did it, so you got to ask him first, right? Because people-oriented people are concerned about the feelings of others. You need people like that. And you probably tend to be less bold if you're people-oriented because you don't like confrontation. You don't like to offend people. You like people to be pleased. If you're task-oriented, feelings very much are secondary. Right? Execution is primary. Let's get the job done. And afterwards, we can get over the sticks and stones. Okay? Let's get the job done. That tends to be the way we are if we're task-oriented. When Martha questions Jesus, she's not thinking so much about what her sister's doing. She's thinking about what she's not doing. And if Jesus is a great teacher, well, he should do something about it. Isn't that what she's saying? And in doing that, she is now venturing into self-righteousness, which is the third thing we learn about her here. And if you think I'm being too hard on her by saying that, I mean, break down what's happening. Jesus, I'm working hard to be a good host. That is the morally right thing to do. You are the teacher. If you care about morality, then you need to tell my sister to stop being lazy. Isn't that what she's saying? Isn't that her approach to Jesus here? She's not only questioning Mary's rightness, but she's actually very much questioning the Lord's rightness. Jesus, if you are a great teacher, then you have to fix this. And she thinks she's the only one right in the situation. Doesn't that happen? Isn't that what happens with self-righteousness? When you're serving and you're doing something and all you're thinking about is the other people that could be there and who are not doing it, you're thinking, oh, I can't believe they're not here. They're probably off you know, fishing on a boat somewhere. They're probably off eating some fancy breakfast somewhere. I'm up here at the church early on a Saturday morning. I'm the only one up here working. <sighs> if this church has had more people like me. You know what I mean? 
That's what happens, right? That's the sort of stuff that starts to happen in your heart when you have that attitude. And therein lies the great danger of being a very task-oriented person who will step up and serve, but also gets frustrated with those who don't. Because you end up taking other people and putting them on trial in your heart, declaring them as guilty, proclaiming yourself as righteous over them, but in reality what's happened is you have sucked the joy out of the work by succumbing to self-righteousness. And you've taken the obedience out of your act. You're taking the obedience out of your service because we know that the Lord looks past the exterior to the heart, right? He looks to the interior. And when He looks at your heart, if it's bitter and it's self-righteous, then there's no true obedience in what you're doing. Our service has to be pleasing to Him on the outside and on the inside. So if you identify with Martha, and again, I confess that I do, then I would bet you don't just identify with her drive, but you also identify with her shortcomings because you've lived it. I'm sure there's been times in the workplace and and at, at home, at church, where you've had the same thoughts and feelings as her. Again, you might identify with her to the point where you're like, I kind of feel like she's right. But let's see how Jesus responds to her. First of all, he says, Martha, Martha to her. Fifteen different times in the Bible, God addresses someone and repeats their name twice like this. Or Jesus addresses someone and repeats their name twice. A couple of memorable examples. Uh, Exodus 3-4, Moses at the burning bush. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Remember Abraham on the mountain, right? His son is on the altar, He's raising up the stake. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. So when somebody would repeat your name twice, it was a a Jewish idiom that you used when you wanted to get someone's attention, but you wanted to do it with affection. What's happening is important. You, You need to get their attention, but you also don't want to cause panic in them. You don't want to be too hard on them. So you're trying to get their attention, but also show them you have affection for them. So I I would say, think about a mom like in a pool teaching their child to swim. And the kid's in the deep end and starts to panic. And mom's right there, but the kid starts to panic and flail and breathe really fast. And it's it's saying, you got to help me, you got to help me. And that mom knows, in this moment, i got to teach this kid to swim. Can't just grab him right away. But they also got to learn not to panic in this water. And so they might look at their child and say their name twice, right? Michael, Michael, right? John, John, whatever. Might look at him and say their name twice because they're trying to get their attention. They're trying to firmly get their attention. It's an important moment, but you got to be gentle too because you don't want the child to panic even more. You don't want to scream at them, right? And so that's what you see here. That's the tone packed into Jesus' address of Martha. She has boldly rebuked the Lord, and he has responded to her with tenderness, which is good news. It's good news for task-oriented people. It shows how kind Jesus is to us in the midst of our busyness, in the midst of our task-driven boldness that can sometimes falter into self-righteousness. And he says to her, you're worried and bothered about so many things. In verse 40, but there's only one thing that's truly necessary in the moment. And that is to sit with Jesus and to hear his teaching. And he tells Mary that, or tells Martha, Mary has chosen the good part, the good portion. To sit at his feet and to listen to him teach. And this will not be taken from her. 
what Mary had decided is, hey, sitting at the feet of the master in the living room as he leads Bible study is more important than going to the kitchen and making food right now. Jesus was teaching and she made a decision. I cannot afford to miss this. This is the only truly necessary thing going on in my life right now. My Lord is teaching in the living room. I've got to be at His feet. A lot of people, when they read this, think that Jesus is looking at Martha and saying, man, you're such a sinner. Why can't you just be like your sister? I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think He's looking at her and trying to call her some sort of idolater here because she's making the table. I don't think He's saying, you did the bad thing and she did the good thing. What He's saying is, she did the better thing. What Martha's doing in serving is not a bad thing. But Mary's doing the best thing in the moment. And let me show you why it's the best thing. If you go to John 17, you have Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's mere hours away from the cross, and it is his longest recorded prayer that we have in the Gospels. And he's praying for his disciples. He's praying for you and me. He's praying for all that the Father gave him. And here's his prayer. Listen to this. John 17, starting in verse 13. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus prays for us, for His people to have full joy. Joy in a world that hates us because it hated Him first. So that joy may not always come easy. There are days where there's persecution. There are days where there's, um, there's opposition. There are days where you might feel hopeless. But on those days, we can have joy in the Lord, and the source of our joy is going to be what? The Word. The Word that belongs to the Father that Jesus has given to His people. He's given the Word of the Father to His people. The Word is what will not only give us joy in a world that hates us, but it will keep us from the evil one, which is Satan, and ultimately it will sanctify us. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, sanctification is the process in which God separates you from sin. When we become children of God, when we are saved, when we repent of our sin and we trust Christ, our position before God is salvation. That's our position before God. We're saved. Rescued from death. Rescued from hell. When when the Father looks at you, He sees the righteousness of Jesus. But you and I know that our bodies, our flesh, still longs for that old sin that used to entangle us. Our flesh still wants to chase those things. And that's why Christians aren't perfect. That's why we still sin. God changes our desires, so we don't enjoy that sin long term the way that we once did, the way we used to, Um, and, and we might have lapses of holiness But we confess to God and we ask for forgiveness on the basis of His Son's death on our behalf. 
And God wants to separate us from that. And so you ought to be able as a Christian to look back to your early years of following Christ and see some sins there that you've put in your past and say, I don't really struggle with that stuff anymore. I'm not going to wake up and assume that I couldn't struggle again, right? I'm not going to take holiness for granted. I'm going to depend on the grace of the Lord every day. But I can look back and see there's stuff that I used to have a hard time with. I don't really have that hard time like I used to. Of course, now, as you dive deeper into the Word and as you mature, God shines new uh, light on, on your sin, right? New, shows you new sins, and now you've got to deal with those. And so he is progressively and constantly just separating you from those old sins of the past and then showing you new sins and separating you from those sins. He's using the truth of his word to sanctify you, to draw you closer to him. That's what Mary is chasing in the living room. And that's why it's the best thing. That's why it's the necessary thing. Making the table isn't bad, but when you stop and ask yourself, what's more important right now, sitting at the feet of the sun or the busyness of hosting, the answer is clear. Now, here's what I know, and I know this because I was thinking it too as I studied and prepared for this. You're going, well, yes, I agree with that. Yes. I, I can take a moment, stop, and go, absolutely. There are times when you got to Sit down at the feet of Jesus and learn. But somebody's got to make the food. Who's going to make the food? Who's going to make sure that all the hospitality is taken care of? And I think Jesus' point here is this stuff's going to get done. Nobody's going to starve. Right? I mean, honestly, if Jesus is in the house, we've seen him come up with a lot of food on very little before. It's going to get done. But you can't be wound so tightly and be so solely focused on the business at hand that you simply don't have time to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn. Because if that's where you're at, it's a, it's a sign of narrow, messed up priorities. And we got to hear that. we got to hear that with our Zoom calls and our smartphones, don't we? We've got to hear that with all of our appointments and our plans, with our chores, our to-do lists, our 14 things that need to be done. We need to know those things cannot dominate our lives. Those things cannot set the agenda of our hearts to the point that we actually see less value in absorbing the sanctifying words of Christ than setting the table. But we do this. We get too busy for church. We get too busy to read our Bibles. We get too busy to pray. We get too busy to commit to being a part of a small group. We get too busy to worship. And you know, the things you're committed to that are keeping you from the best things, you're not, you're not off sacrificing pigs instead of like reading your Bible at some satanic altar, okay? Right? That, that's not what you're doing. You're not bowing down at the altar of some... Uh, carved idol or some you know false god of another religion no you're working you got family stuff you got travel sports you got exercise you got chores none of those things are inherently evil but when they steal our hearts away from the necessary thing they become hurdles to our sanctification 
And Jesus tenderly looks at us and calls us to the good portion. Now, I'm going to close by pointing to some evidence that both of these sisters got it. I think both of these sisters grew to understand what the good portion is and they built their lives on it. So let's start with Martha. I think we see some evidence in John 11 that she joined her sister at Jesus' feet and she embraced the necessary thing. Remember, she went out and boldly met Jesus after Lazarus died. She, was, she didn't stop being bold, okay? And there's nothing wrong with that. But in John 11, it says, Martha says to Jesus, right, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So she's bold, but she's got faith. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's got good theology too. She was a good Jewish woman. She believed in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will uh, live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So he looks at her and says, when we're talking resurrection, Martha, we're not just talking about the last day out in the future. The resurrection power is standing right in front of you. I am the resurrection and the life. And listen to how she responds when he says, do you believe this? Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Now, I don't know if you are reminded of anybody. If she says that, it's an incredible confession from her, but it's very reminiscent of Peter's confession in Matthew 16. Jesus asked the disciples, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus looks at Peter and says, I'll build my church on that, right, on you. And what he means by that is I'll build my church on confessions like that, on that gospel confession. I will build the church. It's the same sort of confession you get from Martha here. She's still bold Martha, but she understands who her Lord is. She sees him as Lord. She sees him as the Son of God. She sees him as the Messiah. And she knows he's her only hope. And he is Lazarus' only hope. And he is the world's only hope. And I think Martha's words in John 11, which were some time after the scene in Luke 10, Clue us into the fact that she learned to choose the good portion. One chapter later in John 12, you see the results of her sister Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, being sanctified by his word. Verse 1, Jesus therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. couple things here. One last word on Martha. She's still serving on her feet, isn't she? Even after her great confession that we see in John 11. So I just want to give a quick sidebar to my task-oriented people who have kind of taken a few punches this morning, all right? We still need you. 
we don't need task-oriented people to stop being task-oriented. We just need to make sure that the best thing is at the top of the list, that it sets the agenda and it sets the tone. You need people who make the table. And so Martha here is setting the table, no evidence of rebuke as she is doing it. It is her habit to serve others, and that is an awesome thing. Just don't let it turn into a busyness that steals you away from the good portion. But secondly, you have our sister Mary here. What an act of worship. Clearly, learning at the Lord's feet has paid dividends in her spiritual maturity because here she is pouring out a perfume worth a year's wages. And she is anointing the feet of Christ and she wipes them down with her hair. And the whole house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume, which is truly the fragrance of her worship. This is an act of sacrificial adoration at the feet of her Lord. So we can confidently say these two faithful sisters here, they have learned what is best. And what it gives us is a picture of what our lives need to be. Our lives, our hearts need to look like the home of Martha and Mary. Because their home, first of all, is filled with the smells of Martha's food, right? It's filled with the smells of service, but it's also filled with the smell of sacrificial devotion and worship. That's what our hearts need to reflect wholehearted service and wholehearted worship. And that's only going to come to pass if you prioritize the necessary thing. That's only going to come to pass if you prioritize the good portion. So I'm going to ask you a question that only you can answer this morning, unless maybe your spouse can help you answer it, but maybe you wait on that feedback, okay? What is plaguing your time that doesn't really need to? What is eating into your Bible reading and eating into your prayer life? What's keeping you from worshiping with your brothers and sisters at church? And this is not a shot at our folks on the live stream who still need to stay at home. So there's a doctor telling them that's a safe thing to do. There's no guilt or shame in that. What sort of busyness is standing in the way of your sanctification? can't answer that for you. You've got to do the work of self-examination. You've got to open your Bibles up, and, and as the book of James says, you need to look at the Word. It's like a mirror, and you look into it. And you don't look into it and see the problems and the fault lines in your busyness and say, well, I'll just walk away. I'll just leave it. It's fine. But you look and you say, I've got to make some changes here. If you don't have time to read your Bible, if it's, if it's collecting dust at home because you don't have time to read your Bible and you don't have time to pray, you don't have time to serve alongside your brothers in the local church, your brothers and sisters, you don't have time to um, say, I'm, I'm going to get involved in a small group. I'm going to be a part of a small group. What's stealing those things from you? The long winter of COVID is starting to warm up, isn't it? I was talking to a friend this week who said, he texted me, he said, the condiments are back out at Five Guys for self-serve. And to him, this was a sign the world was back to normal, okay? <laughs> that was it. 
Another friend in the group text said, I usually don't judge the state of the world by a restaurant that serves peanuts, but uh, hey, if that makes you feel good, I'm glad that those condiments are back out. But I mean, there's full baseball stadiums all over the country, right? You go down to the beach, it's packed. Out and about, pandemic seems to be on the downward slope. But as those restrictions have gone away and continue to go away and more things open up, your to-do list is just going to pile up quicker than ever. It already is happening. You can't be a slave to the task. You need to be a slave to righteousness instead. So sit at the feet of Christ and enjoy the sweetness of His presence in His Word and ask Him to sanctify you with the truth. Put it all on the table before him. Say, Lord, I'm not going to put up any fences around these things. I'm going to put it all on the table. Because I want to be a confessing servant and I want to be a sacrificial worshiper. So show me what has to change. Because chasing those things, that's truly the necessary thing. Let's pray.